0: This episode is sponsored by UKG. UKG offers HR, payroll, and workforce management solutions that support your employees to make your fairy tale workplace a reality.
1: Welcome to Honest HR, the podcast for HR professionals, people managers, and team leads intent on growing our companies for the better. We bring you honest, forward-thinking conversations and relatable stories from the workplace that challenge the way it's always been done. Because after all, you have to push back to move forward. Honest HR is a podcast from SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. And by listening, you're helping create better workplaces and a better world. I'm Wendy Fong. I'm Amber Clayton. And I'm Monique Akadbe. Now, Now, let's get let's get honest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm your host, Amber Clayton, Senior Director of SHRM's Knowledge Center Operations. In our episode today, we're going to discuss the technical competency, HR expertise, employee and labor relations. This year is SHRM's 75th anniversary, and we are focused on driving change. Today, we will discuss how to drive change when it comes to pay equity. This podcast is approved to provide... Point five, recertification PDCs, but only if you listen to the full episode. I'm sure many listeners out there can relate to this situation. You take a new job, you're offered what you think is a competitive salary, and then you find out later that your male counterparts were brought in well above what you were offered. You don't understand, you don't necessarily know what to do with this information, and we will tell you today what to do with this information. I'm pleased to be joined today by Sherm's Chief Human Resource Officer, Jim Link. Welcome to the show, Jim.
0: Hi, Amber, and hello, everyone. I'm super excited to be here today. This is a great topic that we've uh, chosen, and I'm looking forward to discussing it with you, Amber.
1: Great, great. Well, Jim, for our listeners who don't know you, if you can provide just a little bit of background, how long you've been with Sherm?
0: Yeah, well, Amber, I've been a Sherm member for more than 30 years. And Sherm certified for almost uh, 30 years at the senior level uh, professional. So I am super excited to be a part of the Sherm family now as an employee after being a member and a foundation board member for so many years. It's nice to be on this side of the story uh, to talk more and to share all of the great work that Sherm does with the human resources and business community.
1: Great. Yeah. I felt the same way when I came on board with Sherm. I'd had many years of experience in HR. And when I came to Sherm, I felt like, wow, I'm at the pinnacle of the HR. Um, so I was real excited to be a part of Sherm and on that other side of it. So I would agree with you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Me too. Me too. Super exciting to be here. So, and thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today about this great topic.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. So now that our listeners have gotten to know a little bit more about you, let's go ahead and get started. The situation I described where a woman was paid less than a man is a common issue known as pay equity issue. In case you don't know, pay equity is the practice of ensuring fair and equal pay practices to all employees, regardless of gender, race, age, or other protected characteristics. According to the National Committee on Pay Equity, quote, because women earn less on average than men, they must work longer for the same amount of pay. The wage gap is even greater for most women of color. Pay equity has been an issue for many years. The U.S. even has a day to recognize how far women have to work to earn what men earn uh, called Equal Pay Day. And that falls on March 15th of every year. According to the same committee, Equal Pay Day was originated by the National Committee on Pay Equity in 1996 as a public awareness event to illustrate the gap between uh, men's and women's wages. It was originally called National Pay Inequity Awareness Day and changed to the more simplified Equal Pay Day in 1998. Sherm recently conducted research on this topic, and Jim, I know, has some information to share on it. So let's start with what's happening now. Jim, can you kind of talk a little bit about the status of pay equity in the U.S. right now?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Amber. You know, this is a topic that we're hearing more and more about here at Sherm. And fortunately, it's also an area where we've done significant research related to the whole area of what I call the ecosystem of rewards. So it's just not pay equity, it's pay transparency. It's the value of benefits and perquisites and all of those other things which really make up a total pay package for an individual. But today, I know we want to talk more about the pay equity piece of it. So we'll be talking both about that, but also sampling in or sprinkling in other pieces there uh, to help people understand what the broader picture of pay equity looks like. If you think about this around what traditionally is thought of as pay equity, the first thing that we tend to look at is called the pay gap. And people often ask me as the head of human resources if, if there's a wage gap or a pay gap that still exists out there between men and women to start with. And the answer to that question is yes, unfortunately. Um, there absolutely is still a pay gap that exists. And depending upon, Amber, whose statistics you believe, that gap can be anywhere from 65 to 66 cents on the dollar being the comparison between what women earn and what men earn up to uh, as as little as, not that anything's acceptable, but as little as 87 and a half to 88 cents on the dollar. So obviously we would like for that to be no difference between those two, and there have clearly been strides made in recent years to decrease that gap. So it is improving, it's not improving at a pace that any of us would prefer, but clearly we are seeing progress in this space of pay equity gaps between men and women in the workplace.
1: And you actually um, answered my next question about whether or not it has shrunk or it's gotten wider over the years. And, you know, I think we know that it's actually shrunk, but again, not to the rate that we would like it to to shrink.
0: That's exactly right, Amber. And now the pace of that change, uh, the pace of the improvement uh, has gotten better over the years. And interestingly, the pandemic, the COVID crisis actually saw us speed this up just a little bit. And a lot of that may be driven also by what we're seeing happening right now in the labor force. We all know that there are generally about two jobs open for every unemployed person in the United States. There's a significant skills gap. We know that there are more women now in colleges and universities than there are men. So improving those skills and bringing those women into the workforce and more importantly, keeping them in the workforce, uh, which we saw some problems with during the pandemic, of course will actually help that uh, transition and that change toward a better pay equity environment overall as we progress into the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I've heard about and I've read and I've talked to people about is that men are better salary negotiators than women. And you know that might be the reason why there's a pay gap between men and women is that when men have come in, they've negotiated higher salaries, maybe better benefits, Um, The women have. Do you find that that is a true statement or, you know, what is your perspective on that?
0: You know, Amber, historically, that has been the case. Uh, Men have been better negotiators of, of particularly coming into the organization from the beginning. So better at negotiating pay and perquisites and and actually establishing themselves in that marketplace or in that workplace at a higher rate than women who are doing the same work. That's how we evolved into this pay equity issue uh, in the first place in many cases. So, yes, there is some truth to that, and some research has certainly backed uh, that fact up. However, what we're finding more and more now is that organizations are responding to that known fact in some very interesting ways. And one of the ways that I've seen organizations respond to, to the fact that men may be better negotiators is they are demanding that their compensation and their hiring manager teams make a one-time firm fair consistent offer to all people male female tall short black white you know any other category you want to uh, put people into and what the following belief is relates to the fact that if you make that one-time firm fair offer then the people who aren't as good at negotiating We'll see the the opportunity to be paid at the same level as those who might have been better negotiators because the negotiation point isn't going to be allowed. So we'll see. Now, that's a relatively new change uh, that we're seeing out there among some of the more progressive companies. We'll have to see over time how that manifests itself in in actual improvement of the pay equity issue in those organizations. I love the story that organizations are thinking of unique and exciting ways to address this pay equity issue. You know, Amber, it wasn't that long ago, a matter of fact, at Sherm's last inclusion conference out in San Diego in the fall of 2022, where I was on stage uh, with with several uh, senior leaders in in very respectable companies in the United States. And for the very first time in my 30-plus year career as a human resources professional, there was a senior leader sitting to my left who said to a room of 550 people, that there that particular company that their company had achieved pay equity and that was a huge pronouncement a huge statement to make uh in front of of that many people you know honestly even if i thought that i was a chro sitting in an organization at, on a public stage like that in a publicly traded company that had had achieved that level i would have been a little squirrely about saying that out loud right i mean yes. i i i honestly would have been But obviously, she was confident in in that pronouncement. And when I noticed that after that particular uh, section of of our uh, program was done, she was swarmed by people who were asking her, you know, how did we get there and how did we achieve that? And uh, she was was full of the information, uh, much along the lines of the same things that you and I are talking about, about how you get there, uh, that they had done. And it was exciting to, to hear that and to see that. And I just thought it was a huge movement or moment, rather, in time whenever as a, a sitting head of human resources could say that from a, from a stage in a public audience like that. It's, it just goes to show you how important it is now for the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And now, did that individual actually provide some information about how they got there on stage or was it more just individuals when they came up to her? It, it was more
0: of the latter, but you know, there were some general things uh, that they had done. Uh, one is they had, first of all, done their homework in that particular organization to understand, even amongst their own population, what had caused those pay equity issues, uh, in the first place. And a little, lo- a little bit of it was related to how they viewed people coming into the organization from the start. So they had to look at early career professionals and, and ensure they were doing the right thing across the board for those professionals. And they were a multinational uh, company uh, with primary uh, operations in the United States. So they first began by looking at an individual location and then they went into a region and then they went to a geography and then they went nationally to understand what those differences were and how that they could be impacted. So, so they really took a, a very surgical Uh, approach to understanding what was causing that pay uh, equity or that pay inequity in their organization and then approach it. And it took them years. This was not a solution set that was solved in even a year or two. It was something that took them a a great amount of time to do, but it was a, a very focused effort in that organization to achieve that pay equity. And this is an organization that has a female ceo and a female head of human resources as an example right so you can understand why it was important for them to ensure that this was a something that they fought to achieve in their specific company
1: Yeah, that is actually great. I was reading an article in Bloomberg report. It's called uh, Transparency in Gender Equity Disclosures is Rising. And it stated that, quote, more than 600 organizations across 50 countries revealed their gender-related workforce data in Bloomberg's 2023 Gender Equality Index report, representing an 11% increase in disclosures over the previous year. Uh, They were scored on things like talent uh, leadership pipeline, equal pay, gender parity, inclusive culture, uh, anti-sexual harassment policies, and external brand. Um, I just found it to be really interesting uh, that – It mentioned that companies voluntarily disclose gender metrics and that, you know, they're sharing it with their investors. And for those individual, you know, companies that are voluntarily sharing this information, they are becoming more competitive in the market. People want to work for these companies. The investors want to work with these companies that are, you know, focused on equal pay. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting, uh, you know, because it's it's part of the the talent acquisition strategy. And right now, many employers are still facing labor shortages uh, since the height of the pandemic.
0: Yep, you're absolutely right, Amber. And you know, let's be clear: you cannot effectively talk about pay equity without also talking about the broader ecosystem of total rewards. And one of those things where we've seen a lot of action in the last few years has been around what we typify or what we label as pay transparency. And at Sher, we do a lot of research related to pay transparency because it has an impact on just those things you were describing, Amber, the ability to attract, retain, engage, excite, motivate, you know, drive people to a result in an organization it has a lot to do with how authentic and transparent they believe that organization can and should be in all things related to, to their livelihood. And of course, a piece of that clearly is pay. Now, we don't believe it should just be related to, to pay itself because it's also equally important that we understand that in those places where you're required to talk about pay in your organization, it's usually base pay only. And base pay only is only one piece of a broader story of how we should think about how an employee is rewarded in in the workplace. It should include many of those things that you talked about a little bit earlier, how you're hired, how you're promoted, how you're taken care of, how you're benefited, the perquisites that come along with that, if there happens to be an incentive compensation component to that. All of those things are tied into this broader picture of how we think about the total rewards systems in companies and organizations. So yes, pay transparency goes to a certain point in ensuring we have the capability to understand how a job is base paid in an organization. But there's so much more to that. We know, for example, that in our own research here at Sherm, 42% of human resources professionals who were surveyed said that their organization operates in a location that requires pay ranges to be included in job postings. We also know that when it's not required by law, However, more than two in three or about 67% of HR professionals say their organizations already voluntarily list the starting pay in their job postings and it sometimes do that even for positions that are even very senior level in their organizations. Even more important, 32% of those same organizations began including pay information in their job postings within the past year. So we know that this is a, a more timely current thing that we should be talking about. And we know that this signals in some way that some employers may be thinking or planning ahead in anticipation of what they may see coming down their, down the pike in their own state or, or municipality related to pay transparency. So listen, this is an evolving, moving thing that we're at Shermer paying a lot of attention to right now. And we know that pay transparency helps with pay equity. We know that there are many other things that also impact pay transparency and pay equity. And we really call on supervisors and leaders and managers and organizations and companies themselves to think about how they want their organization to be viewed by potential employees, by shareholders, by stockholders, by others as an equal pay or equitable equitable pay type of organization. And this research only confirms the fact that this is a very, very important part of what the future of business looks like in America.
1: Absolutely. And this is not necessarily based on research, but more anecdotal is we hear members or employers say, I'm concerned about putting my salary ranges on job postings. You know, what's going to happen with the employees who are currently employed and they see that and they think that they're underpaid? Uh, You know, there's definitely some concerns, but on the other side of it, I see it as, people will be able to see what those jobs are offering as far as pay and make a determination as to whether or not they want to apply for those organizations. You're really saving yourself time, and they're saving their time uh, if it's not what they want. Uh So I think that having that tra- pay transparency is is really actually a good thing. And I believe our research, and and correct me if I'm wrong, there was research that indicated that there was a um, higher percent of applicants as a result of the pay transparency, the voluntary pay transparency.
0: Yeah, you know, Amber, you're you're exactly right. And we know that this pay transparency and pay equity focus is changing behaviors. And that's what's critically important. And it's changing behaviors of two groups, employers and employees. And here's how we know this. First of all, if you are a person who's in uh, a company or organization, when we ask you what we know that listing pay ranges on job postings does. We know that for the employer, 70% of organizations say that posting those pay ranges on their job applications has led to more people applying. So already we see improvement in the quality and volume, at least, of people who are applying for open positions in organizations. We also know, Amber, that 66% of organizations say that having those pay ranges on their postings has increased the quality of those applicants. So 70% volume now, 66% on the quality of those applicants. And we further know that 65% of organizations who post those ranges on their job postings tell us that it makes them more competitive in attracting top talent. So if you're on the organizational side, you've got some overwhelming statistics now supporting the idea, at least according to those people who are doing it already, Mm -hmm. that they're getting better volume. They're getting better quality, and it makes them more competitive in attracting pe- people into the workplace to start with. Now, that's the employer. Now, let's look at the employee side. If you're on that employee side, and this is what you were alluding to, Amber, in the question you asked me earlier, 82% of U.S. workers, now this is U.S. only in these stats, right? But we can, we can assume that there probably is some uh, way you can extrapolate these findings on a global basis as well. We'll let the professionals do that. But 82% of U.S. workers are more likely to consider applying to a job if the pay range is listed in the job posting. 82%. I mean, that, that itself is, is an overwhelming statistic and a reason why employers should definitely think about this uh, in their organizations. We also know that 74% of those same workers say they're less interested in applying to jobs that don't list the pay range. So 82% favorability, 74% basically unfavorability, You know, that's an interesting statistic as well, right? Another way to look at that same data. We also know, and this is important as you're thinking about building cultures of openness and transparency and agility in your organization. Amber, we also know that 73% of U.S. workers are more likely to trust organizations that provide pay ranges and job postings than ones that don't. Now, if you're a chief human resources officer, you know that the development of a great workplace culture usually rests on your shoulders. And so if you've got 73% of people telling you that they trust organizations, trust is a vital component in the development of any culture. And at SHRM, we talk about cultures of belonging, cultures of collaboration, cultures of learning, and cultures of innovation. And we know that when you put those four together, you get fantastic outcomes. So knowing that you're more likely to trust an organization, which is an essential component of any cultural component, Certainly builds out an outcome for an organization that will lead to better business results, better employee engagement results, better shareholder returns, and all other kinds of measures that have been looked at over the years. So lots of data and numbers there to support employers and employees who are focusing on at least pay transparency in job postings and the like to help with this pay equity problem that we're talking
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the ones that I mentioned that are uh, still leery because they have current employees and they're concerned about putting these ranges out there, what what type of guidance or s- suggestions would you have for those particular employers?
0: You know, they're going to be pressured into doing this uh, just simply because the world is moving in this direction. There are already state laws uh, in many places that require this we see that trend growing, not slowing down or, or even stabilizing, it's growing. So employers would be well advised to start doing a deep dive in their own organizations to think about how pay should be looked at and viewed. And remember, it's not just pay. You as an employer have a bigger story to tell about all things related to your workplace. And that includes your total reward offerings and the way that you think about attracting employees, promoting employees, Giving employees learning and development opportunities, providing career experiences for those individuals. There's more to the total work picture than just pay, but understanding how pay is a centralized component in at least getting people to look at your uh, roles initially is something you can't forget. And listen, if you're, if you're worried about what would happen in your organization if you posted those jobs, then the way to think about that is to do a lot of homework and a lot of deep analysis on your current pay structures and pay analysis uh, and the way people are rewarded. And then work with outside experts or mentors or coaches in this space to help you think about how to address this going forward. My encouragement to those senior leaders and organizations that have some fear of doing this is to do your homework. Because once you start understanding what's required and where you are in the greater marketplace, you might not have the problem that you think you have anyway. Um, I've talked to a couple of organizations who were a little fearful about approaching this and when they actually started digging in to look at how they were rewarding people, particularly on that base pay perspective, they weren't in a in a place where that they thought they might be uh, on the positive, you know, meaning that they, they were better off than they thought that they might be uh, just uh, from an initial uh, peak. So homework is essential. There are experts out there who really can help with pay equity. And let's face it, if we can address this in corporate America or, or in governments or anywhere where that people are paid, we're going to solve some some larger societal issues that have been haunting us for a very, very long time, which is how we started this conversation, Amber, by talking about wage gaps and disparities in the first place. We know, for example, that it's just not women who suffer from pay equity issues in the workplace. We also know that it applies to, to people of color. And it applies to people of different ages as well. We know there's also some age ageism, uh, in, in the pay systems and pay structure issues in our, in our, most of our companies. So getting a systematic, thoughtful, well researched and well homework based approach to solving this problem in an individual company is solving potentially a larger societal problem as well. We shouldn't lose sight of that, that. Taking a bite of this in one organization, large or small, helps address bigger problems that we are facing in our country. And I I love the idea that we as human resources professionals can make a difference in that way.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And something uh, on that same topic is... I've heard, you know, we're concerned about salary compression where new hires are coming in close to or hitting, you know, or over salary of tendered employees. And, you know, for those employers, some employers are addressing this by adjusting the salary. They might be conducting off cycle adjustments, maybe providing a cash bonus, higher merit budgets. But like you said, it's really about doing your homework, and uh, building that compensation philosophy, the compensation structure, communicating that to employees so that they understand What's the criteria, and how are they? How do they compensate people? Uh, where do we fall within the range? Why do we fall where within the range? You know, all of those things is part of being transparent in building that trust with the employees. So it's not just the trust of the people who are coming into the organization or applying for the organization, but it's also for the people who are there and employed, and they want to be able to trust that they're being paid fairly. And the way that they'll do that is through communication, uh, communicating, you know what their compensation philosophy is and and what their salary ranges are.
0: That is absolutely right. All of those things that you mentioned are the right things to do uh, in organizations. And you are right. The skills gap in America particularly is certainly leading to wage compression issues, particularly in the early stages of, of one's career. There are skills and competencies out there today that employers are hiring for which have a more valuable place, more value in the workplace today than they did two or three years ago. That's creating some disparities where that new people coming into organizations may be paid at or even above uh, what current employees in that organization are doing. We know that. We see that. It's not unique to any one group or company or industry or, or even region. And employers and in particularly human resources professionals within those organizations are grappling with that issue. And let's face it, the pandemic made it worse. Because uh, when you think about uh, what skills were available out there, the great resignation or the great reconciliation or whatever it is that you want to call it uh, these days. Um, there's There's also an idea that employers should be thinking about novel and new and exciting ways to address those compression issues. And we're seeing some really interesting stuff. A lot of it tied to giving people new experiences, to giving those employees who may feel like they're impacted by those wage compression issues, unique opportunities in organizations to do things differently. We're seeing employers come in and say, look, we understand this is an issue. We wanna be transparent about it. And we pledge to address this over the course of the next six, 18, 24 months, right? Whatever their their solution set uh, might be. I don't think, Amber, a one size fits all solution set is is, uh, appropriate here. But I would encourage specific employers to, again, understand where that those compression issues are occurring, to address it with those people who are impacted in their organizations, and to say, look, we get this, we understand it, uh, we're committed to uh, addressing it. I, it's not feasible from a financial perspective for us to do this all at once or, or overnight. So bear with us. Here's the plan. And if you can say that with a high degree of confidence and capability, assuming, of course. The, the economic conditions allow you to, to do what what you've committed to, um, then that does go a long way toward addressing wage compression in the workplace today for all people, uh, not just women or people of color, but for anyone who's coming in uh, who might be impacted by that, particularly that skills compression that we talked about a little bit earlier.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, you talked about the total compensation package and uh, how benefits play into this as well. And I've done some presentations for other companies and we've talked about this. And when you're looking at your compensation, your benefit package, your total compensation uh, package, you want to customize too. You want to look at customizing things because salary may not be the most important to everyone. You know, there could be benefits that are more important, like the flexible work schedules or the professional development. Uh, you know, so when you're thinking about your packages and, you know, what you offer to your employees and to the candidates coming in the door, look at those things as well. Look at customizing it based on your employee population, because I think that goes a long way.
0: Amber, you're absolutely right. And it wasn't that long ago that our own surveys were telling us that the most important thing that you could do to attract a person into a workplace was to uh, offer flexibility and agility in the work structures and work systems. Pay wasn't the number one. It was number two. Now, it's always in the top five. Let's be clear. Any survey... Absolutely. Absolutely. Any survey I've ever shown or seen says that it's in the top five. And particularly during the pandemic. And even now... For younger employees in the workplace, flexibility and agility. In many of these surveys that I've seen out there, uh, it ranks as high or higher than pay, at least for certain population groups. And you're right. It's important not to overlook or gloss over the idea that it's an ecosystem in the workplace. And that ecosystem is comprised of many components of which pay is just one of them. It's just one. And we moved the idea of flexibility and agility in the workplace forward 20 years in the space of two years, in, in thanks in no small part to the, to the COVID crisis. And let's face it, employees are not going to let us forget that. So, so employers are thinking long and hard now about how to offer that ecosystem uh, in such a way that it's inclusive of pay equity and pay transparency, but includes many, many other things which are as important in some surveys uh, to particular groups of of uh, uh, people coming into the workplace
1: i think that some employers when we when they think about flexibility they're thinking about remote work or hybrid work because that's been the top topic over the last couple of years but flexibility can be things like just allowing your employees to leave early or come in late when they need to. It could be providing an extended break time. It could be, you know, a day off here or there, or maybe it is teleworking a couple of days a week. But there's many ways to be flexible. And I think for the most part, you know, people want to be able to know that they can come to an employer and if they need that time, they can get that time. And I think often. They don't feel like they can, they feel like they'll either be penalized or, you know, they'll come back and they'll have loads of work or, you know, it's going to be frowned upon if they take time off and uh, employers need to have that empathy. They need to be empathetic to understand what's happening with their employees and, you know, what type of flexibility they might need.
0: That's all right, Amber. And we learned something in the last three to four years that's vitally important. We learned that employers can create two types of cultures. They can create a culture of engagement and excitement and anticipation of the future for their companies or they can create a culture of burnout and there's not a lot in the middle so what what i think we're focusing more and more on is helping employers understand that the culture they create whether it's about flexibility or where why how and when work gets done or or what have you those things are vitally important to the future success of an organization and they're even more important to how and you are viewed by current employees and potential employees in engagement surveys, in, in reviews for, for third-party sites that are looking at, at outcomes and, and ratings of how you are as an employer. But companies that focus on cultures of learning, cultures of achievement, and producing an outcome often are focused on those things and are less focused on how, why, when, or where that work gets done. And we're seeing more and more of that transition. I think that's going to continue to occur. We are encouraging employers to look at, where possible, a hybridized approach, what we call a structured hybridized approach to work. Uh, And I get it. I understand that, that many employers and senior leaders in organizations want their employees together in the name of collaboration and cooperation and innovation and entrepreneurship. I get that. Totally understand it. But there are ways to achieve that and still demonstrate that agility and flexibility in other ways in the workplace. Let's, as leaders in, in our society, as employers in our society, should find that way to that happy middle ground. And it's achievable, no doubt in my mind. Yeah,
1: absolutely. We talked about the the employers who voluntarily post their salary ranges on their positions. Uh, you know, as we know, there is an increase in the pay transparency laws by state, and some people may not realize this, but there are states that have bans on asking about salary history, and that was uh in part due to the the wage gap and you know if if employers were having people come in and they were bringing men at the rate that they were being paid previously or maybe a little bit more, again, historically women have been paid lower, so that just continues that pattern of them being paid less than men moving forward. So not only the salary history, the pay transparency, but we're also now seeing the reporting laws with the EEO, uh, the equal employment opportunity commission. And, uh, you know, some employers and contractors are going to not need to actually post what their, pay wages are. So I bring that up because for employers who are on listening to this right now, you know, be sure to keep track of what's happening in your localities, your States, especially if you're a multi-state employer, because there may be these changes coming up within your areas that you'll need to comply with and understand. So I just wanted to share that with our listeners.
0: Yeah, Amber, you're, you're absolutely right. And as we talked about a little bit earlier in, in this podcast, we don't see this slowing down. You know, the argument's going to be, are you more competitive as an employer in a state that requires pay transparency or in a state that doesn't? I think I know where that's going to land, all right? I have a hypothesis there. And let's, I mean, let's look at our own research, uh, Amber. So we know, based on SHRM research, That nearly three in five U.S. companies who voluntarily conduct pay equity reviews, we know that they do that purposefully and with a a mindset that that there's homework to be done and an understanding to be gained there. Of those organizations that do those, those three in five organizations that actually do those pay equity reviews, a whopping 83% of them adjusted employee pay after the audit or after that review. Now, if that doesn't tell you that there's a problem to be solved, in, at least in those companies that are looking, then I don't I don't know what does. Eighty three percent actually went in and did that. Now, it only makes sense then that if we're trying to address this pay equity issue for women, people of color, and other other groups, there's smoke here, right? And and where there's smoke, we need to go in and extinguish those flames. That's exactly what these employers are doing, who are voluntarily doing this before they're mandated to do so. So I'm encouraging everyone to to work with outside professionals. I mean, there are compensation uh, leaders out there and audit professionals who can actually help you understand where you would stand or where you would be positioned, uh, and and should make changes before you're forced to do that. So. I love the idea of employers who are progressive enough um, and are actually interested in what this outcome would be so that they can get ahead of this curve and understand how to impact their own workforce before they're required to do so.
1: Absolutely. And so for those people who are applying for positions that the companies don't post their job salary ranges... Any advice to give to them on how they can ensure that they're receiving they're receiving fair pay when they're going to apply for these positions and you know looking at the offers any suggestions on how women or people of color could you know ensure that they're getting a fair fair pay
0: Yeah well before I answer that question Amber let's look at the stats right because we we know that we, there's an issue here Nearly 20% of American workers don't trust that their employer pays people equally for equal work. So we've already got a problem. 20% just have a negative view and don't believe that that's there in the first place. If you're a woman, you're even more likely than men to say that they don't trust their employer to pay equally. And if you are a person of color, you're even more likely than white people to say that they don't trust their employer to pay, to pay equally. So we already have an issue here uh, to start with. Now, With that being said, the the question that you really asked me is, now that we know this, what do you do? So the answer is very clearly for anyone who's attempting to to go into an organization in a new job where that that pay scale is not known or not posted. First of all, is to do your homework. There is so much information that's available online or from our resources, most of it free or at very, very low cost for you to be able to make those determinations about what pay should be for specific roles. Now, when you look at that, remember, pay is targeted because of the skills, experiences, competencies, and capabilities that that employer is looking for. So the better able you are to demonstrate line by line in that job description, the skills, experiences, competencies, and capabilities that you have to do what that employer is looking for, the more of a demand you can place on what you should be paid for that particular work. Most people don't do that. They don't take the time to compare and contrast line by line what it is that they need to do or what they can do to convince that employer that their skills, competencies, and capabilities warrant or merit a specific, uh, particularly base pay, right? So do your homework. And be ready to, to talk your talk and walk your walk because you have skills and capabilities. That employer wants them. Remember, there are still two jobs open for every unemployed person out there in the, in the United States anyway. And that gives you a significant advantage if you're an employee. It is an employee friendly market and the, the, the balance of power between employees and employers in the workplace, even though we see layoffs today and we see things happening out there is still in favor of the employee. Let, let's face it, particularly if that employee is mobile and, and willing to, uh, to, to do things uh, like move or uh, to, to change industries or what have you in order to secure a new role. I also encourage those who are seeking jobs to find a mentor, to find a coach, to find a trusted person in that organization or in another organization who can just provide a third-party view for them on what they're asking for, what they're seeking, and how they should approach that particular employee or employer. I know, for example, I worked uh, with... Uh, a, a job candidate who was looking at a chief human resources officer role in a company uh, lately. And we talked for hours about the best way for this particular job candidate to approach the market for uh, that person to get paid what they deserve to be paid. And it, it wasn't an easy process. Uh, it went back and forth a couple of times. But I can tell you that job candidate, when the job was accepted, I felt very, very good that that I had helped that person get what they deserved. And I also have thought many times what that person would have gotten if I would not have been involved. So there is opportunity there to help others, particularly if you walked in this pathway before or you have some knowledge about how, how it should go. My view is to seek out those individuals who are willing to help you to listen and to, to help you tell your story with that potential future employer.
1: Jim, does Sherm have a position on pay equity, pay transparency laws, or anything that might be related to that?
0: Amber, you bet we do. We We understand that equitable pay is certainly critical in creating the types of workplaces that we all want in our society. We research this topic, we understand it, and we also believe that policy proposals that stifle a human resources professional's ability to reward employees based on a business factor such as education or qualifications or skills or relevant experience don't adequately address this issue. So what SHRM does is we continue to work with policymakers to ensure employers have the flexibility to base pay decisions on their own very unique and legitimate business practices while ensuring everyone is equally compensated based on their work.
1: That is great. Well, that seems like a good place to end. That's really good information that you provided to us today, Jim. Is there anything else that you think our listeners should know before we end the show?
0: Well, first of all, Amber, thank you for the opportunity to chat with our listeners today about this important topic. I encourage all of our SHRM members out there to go onto the SHRM website and look at the research that's available out there regarding pay equity and pay transparency. This is an important topic for SHRM. It should be an important topic for you as an employer or as an employee. And we encourage you to get smart uh, on the topic because more changes are coming in this space. And SHRM will be there leading the way with knowledge and research to help you uh, along the way as we change and grow in our society and in our organizations for the betterment of the world of work, workers and the workplace.
1: Thank you, Jim. And with that, we've come to the end of our show. Jim mentioned that we have resources on SHRM.org. One of them is a toolkit called Managing Pay Equity. We also have a hub page dedicated to pay equity resources. You can also contact SHRM's Knowledge Center and ask one of our HR advisors for assistance at SHRM.org forward slash HR help. Thank you again, Jim, for taking part in this episode. And as for our listeners, this podcast is approved to provide recertification PDCs, but only if you listen to the full episode. After you've listened to each part, you are eligible to enter this activity ID, 24-US5X3. And that again is for 0.5 recertification PDCs in your SHRM certification portal. If you haven't already, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you'd like to learn more about the Honest HR podcast, about myself or the other hosts, or to get additional information and resources on what was discussed in today's episode, head on over to Sherm.org forward slash honestHr. And to learn more about other Sherm podcasts, check out Sherm.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Honest HR.
0: Every leader wants their employees to live and work happily ever after. Thankfully, you don't need a magic wand or a fairy godmother to make that dream come true. HR, payroll, and workforce management solutions from UKG give you the tools you need to support and celebrate all of your people. Now you can make your fairy tale workplace a reality with UKG.